0: If you have your Bibles, I ask that you return to Philippians chapter two, verses five through eleven. Philippians two, five through eleven. The words to this passage are also in your worship guide or your bulletin that you received when you arrived, so you can find it in whichever one of those sections or whichever one of those uh, sources. Philippians two, five through eleven. So As we begin, there's I want to tell you there's a um, 550 foot tall skyscraper uh, in lower Manhattan in New York City, which will not take you by surprise at all. You say, okay, wow, Stephen, there's a skyscraper in New York City, and next you're going to tell us uh, the sky is blue or (laughs) something like that. Um, But here's the thing that's fascinating about this skyscraper. It's 550 feet tall, and it has zero windows. Well, it's it's got a couple on the doors on, on ground level that you go in and out of, but that's it. Otherwise, it is this just big, empty, fortress-looking structure. And this big, 550-foot-tall, tall, fortress-looking structure is located at 33 Thomas Street, right in lower Manhattan. It does not house apartments or condominiums. It does not house retail space. It does not house uh, office space. It doesn't house anything that most large skyscrapers would be used for. So you might ask, of course, well, what is the purpose of this building? Well, the purpose of 33 Thomas Street is it is full of, it, it, it is a telephone exchange building, a telephone exchange center. So it has just a ton of wires, a ton of technical uh, communications equipment that serves to build up or serves to uphold much of the communication infrastructure uh, across this country and, and particularly across the eastern seaboard. To give you one example, back in September of 1991, on one day, the power went out at this facility due to both human error as well as uh, technical errors. And uh, in this one day when the power went out just for a few moments, over five million phone calls were dropped and the FAA lost contact with 398 different airports up and down the East Coast. This building is important. It's said that it's one of the most secure facilities in the country. If you or I walk up to it, we are not going to be able to gain entrance to it. You know what's fascinating about 33 Thomas Street? Is it reveals just a small glimpse of how complicated and how much effort goes into upholding what we perceive as just the day-to-day life that we live. But you know what else is fascinating? Is that here, right here, with us, there are multiple... 33 Thomas Streets, dozens, in fact. And here's what I mean by that. Your mind, science has proven that your mind, our minds, when they function, they fire off what are called neurochemicals, that, that, that an innumerable amount, uh, that, that just flow throughout your whole body and control your limbs, control organs, control all sorts of aspects of your body where your thoughts literally drive so much of what you do. One scientist described it that our body is this very complicated uh, 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 symphony that is playing and our thoughts are the conductor that is perfectly guiding the symphony along. Just like 33 Thomas Street upholds a world full of complexities, our minds direct a body with numerous chemicals and numerous all sorts of things in it that manifests itself in our words, our actions, our thoughts, our habits, our interactions with others. It's all rooted in our minds that fire off these chemicals, these neurochemicals. So what of our minds? This morning we're going to see in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11, the Apostle Paul address the minds of those who are in Christ. We're going to see particularly that he argues that our minds must be transformed by Christ, both in his humiliation as well as in his exaltation. Let me say that again. Our minds must be transformed by Christ, both in his humiliation as well as his exaltation. But don't take my word for it. Open up to Philippians 2 and let's read it together. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. I'll read it. I invite you to follow along silently while I read. Listen to Paul's instructions for our minds. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes the following. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, This is God's word. May he write its truths on our hearts this morning. So we're going to see three things from Paul in this letter. We're going to see a charge, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then we're going to see a a rationale for this charge or an explanation for why Paul is giving this charge. And then we're going to see the exaltation of Christ that is the hope of this charge. So a charge, an instruction, and then an explanation and an exaltation uh, of Christ and how these shape this charge that he gives us. So in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul, once again, he's going for the mind. He's going for the, the, the mind, the heart, the, the in, innermost dwelling of, of, of our souls, in order that knowing that if he grabs hold of that, if Christ has hold of that, then that is going to shape everything about us. So previously in verses 1 through 4, you remember from last week, if you were here, how he addressed that if you have uh, experienced the love of God, if you have uh, any encouragement in Christ, any participation in the Spirit, then these will what? These will shape your, out, your conduct, your attitude, your humility your, your, towards one another in the church, and it will particularly uh, empty you of selfishness and conceitedness that would cause you to look arrogantly upon one another. And so as as he brought the gospel to bear, and particularly the triune God upon the church's conduct with one another last week, now he brings it to the mind and he sets Christ before us as an example. And so Paul gives us this charge to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now how does this mind of Christ look? Well, look at the explanation that he gives in verses 6 through 8. Actually, pause real quick. Before we go to this, I want to make note here that as we begin to look at verses 6 through 11, if, if you are new to Christianity or perhaps you're still kind of interacting with it, still learning some about uh, Jesus and, and the Bible, uh, you are here particularly on uh, a, a wonderful Sunday, particularly as we are going to see what I believe to be perhaps the greatest, small, concise section of Scripture about the glory of Jesus Christ and who He, was, who he is all the way from eternity past all the way to eternity future. We're going to see both his humiliation and leaving eternity and coming all the way down here, and then we're going to see his exaltation and what the future holds for the glory of his name. And so you are going to get a front row seat introduction to Christ. So I ask you, if, if, if this is where you are, to tune out perhaps what you might have thought of Christ that's shaped you in pop culture or in politics or in uh, uh, things that you may have heard before that... that you're not sure what to make of them, even things you may have heard in uh, church or religious settings before. I hope that they agree with what we're going to see in Philippians today, but tune in in order to see Christ as revealed by the Apostle Paul in the glory of his humiliation and his exaltation, okay? Can you do that with us? All right, so first we're going to see the humiliation of Christ in verses 6 through 11. Paul says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then he says in verse 6, who, that's Christ, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let's pause right there, actually. So Paul says in verse 6 that Christ was in the form of God. And in verse 7, you see he says there, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This word for form is uh, important for us to see, because what he's saying here, sometimes translations from one language to another can, can be a little difficult. And so we might read the word form and think, okay, does that mean that he, he kind of looked like God, but he wasn't really God? Or does that, does that mean maybe he, he had certain attributes of God, but nah, it wasn't quite fully him? But that's not what Paul is saying here. The word that Paul uses for form here it can be translated as uh, having the attributes, having the nature, having the very essence of this one that he is describing. So Paul is saying, when he's saying that he was in the form of God, he's saying he was and he is fully God in, 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 in the totality of who he is. But then he's saying in verse 7 that not only was he in the form of God, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. He took on the form of man in order to come and serve. So he was fully God and he was fully man. That's a very important for us to understand as we see and as we walk through this passage. It actually falls apart if Christ is not fully God or, or, or if he did not fully take on human flesh in coming to dwell amongst us. And so Paul says in verse six, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing, some translations might say a thing to be held onto For advantage. So Christ, uh, uh, in his eternal preexistent, Jesus Christ the Son, God the Father, Holy Spirit, all there. But Christ laid aside the privileges and the advantages that he had there in order to come and do something here. And in order to come and do his something here, which was his redemptive work, he had to lay aside or he had to be uh, emptied of some of the advantages that he held in that eternal state. Now, see this in verse 7. So he, he uh, uh, though he's in verse 6, so he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But then verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now, this, this idea of him who, who was fully God and then emptying himself and coming in dwelling, uh, and dwelling and being in the form of a servant, we'll wait. <laughs> we'll wait on the truck. Uh, it, as he did these, uh, it, it's an incredible picture to behold in our minds, right? If you've heard a very, uh, it, it's not a very familiar Christmas hymn. I haven't sung it. I don't think at any Christmas, but it's written by a guy named Edward Caswell, and he wrote a, a hymn called "See Amid the Winter Snow." And in illustrating this picture of Christ, who is in the form of God yet took the form of a servant, he writes, "Low within the manger lies He who built." the starry skies and that is christ now we talk of this language of him emptying himself though what what does that mean does that mean that when he came to earth when he was born in the manger that he all of a sudden was not god that he, he he kind of took off his godness for a little while and then maybe he'd resume it later on well no that's not it it just means that he emptied himself of some of the privileges some of the rights perhaps even some of the honor of being divine help illustrate this picture of him emptying himself, I want to share with you an illustration that was shared with me by a friend of mine, and I think it was shared with him by another preacher friend of his, so an illustration that maybe just makes its way through preachers, so if you've heard it before, uh, it's not original to me. Um, but anyway, the, the original source of this is actually a seminary professor and uh, pastor named Brian Chappell, who he was talking about. One time he was uh, speaking with a uh, missionary who had been serving in Africa, And this missionary who was serving in Africa was specifically serving in a region and amongst a tribe of people where um, in this tribe, the strongest, most physically fit, healthy man in the tribe was the chief of the tribe. So if we were a tribe, I would be the chief. And (laughs) the jokes are free, folks. Um, And and so anyway, the strongest, most physically fit man was the chief in the tribe. Now, um, this chief would wear a very elaborate, very beautiful headdress and very uh, uh, elaborate, beautiful ceremonial robes uh, that would be his by virtue of him being the chief. Now, one day, a, a, another man in the tribe had gone to this well in order to draw water out. And uh, in the event of him drawing the water out, he accidentally fell into the well and injured himself. And so he was in the bottom of the well and needed help in, in, in this injured state. So a few of the other uh, Uh, men in the tribe uh, went to the well and they tried to climb down the well and try to lift him up and try to pull him out, but none of them were able to do so. And so eventually, as they saw that none of them were able to do so, and this man had to be rescued out of the well, they called the chief, the strongest, healthiest man amongst them. The chief, the only one who could possibly accomplish this task. So the chief arrives on the scene, and he arrives on the scene, and what he does is he takes off the headdress, he takes off the ceremonial Beautiful robes, and then he climbs down the well and he lifts the injured man up and picks him up on his shoulder and is able to climb his way out of the well. Now, think about this just because he took off the headdress and took off the robes, did he stop being the chief? No. And just because Christ left that state, being in the form of God, and he emptied himself, or he was always in the form of God, but just because he emptied himself, and came to earth and was born in the form of a servant, did he stop being God? No. It's part of what he has come to accomplish as God. Just as that chief climbed down into the well, Christ has come to us. And so Paul says, Jesus Christ, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, he was born in the likeness of men. And then verse eight he says, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see the line that Paul is drawing here? I mean, you go from the eternal pre-existence of Christ in in, in the experience and relationship and fullness of of, of joy in the triune relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then by the time, that's where we start in verse 6, but then by the time we get to verse 8, it says that he... um, uh, was found in human form and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then it's like, if that is not enough, do you see the parentheses in the next section there? Even death on a cross. It's like he's highlighting here the dramatic fall, the dramatic uh, 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 just condescension of Christ Jesus, the humiliation of going from one state to all the way to death on a cross. You see, the cross was a place that was reserved. It was a punishment that was reserved for the most vile of criminals, the most repulsive, most intolerable of criminals. It was a place of both physical torment and pain and great emotional shame and vitriol the cross was where the the, the prisoner the pun, the one being punished would have nails driven into his hands and he'd be hung up on this cross and then not if the physical pain of being hung on a cross was not enough the shame of being hung on a cross naked for hundreds even thousands of people to pass by over the course of a few days and to mock you and to ridicule you this is what christ endured This is what Paul is holding up for us as he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so as he's bringing it back to the church family, and he's urging the church family towards humility, you probably respond to this. I hope you respond to this like I respond to this as I studied this throughout this week. And that is I read verses 6 to 8, and I say to myself, you know, I'm not as humble as I thought I was. This is on a different level. See, most of us think of ourselves as generally humble, or at least humble enough. Those of us who think of ourselves as exceptionally humble probably think of ourselves like like we're going to write a book called Humility and How I Attained It. We're prideful in our humility. Christ holds up a picture of humility here that is entirely beyond the scope of our human reason. If we're honest, what we try to do, if we look at this humiliation of Christ going all the way down, what we try to do is we recognize we're down here and we're trying to claw our way up. Paul says, no. Have this mind among yourselves, for if you profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, how can you walk around in arrogance and in pride towards one another? You know, This manifests itself in a few different ways, and and, and one of the ways in which this reveals itself or manifests itself in life is that these few verses, they're small, verses 5 through 11, just six verses, right? Maybe I can encourage you to make effort to memorize those over the course of the days, the weeks ahead. Maybe memorize those with your spouse or your friend or your family. Parents, memorize them with your children, and Children, teenagers, whenever mom and dad ask you to do the dishes and you don't really want to do them, maybe as you're scrubbing the dishes really hard, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who's always in the form of God. But then, mom and dad, right? This would tell us not to lord over our children, right? In harshness, and in ridicule, and in insensitivity. It says, no, have this mind among yourselves where... Your Lord came and died for you. Boy, how does that, in fact, how we relate to one another? You know, another way that, this, that this, this comes to my mind is how this helps us to relate to one another, how this helps to shape our lives, is all current events aside, uh, we, we are seeing things in our day and age right now where uh, injustices and um, uh, just, just uh, terrible atrocities are, are unfolding, and, and we ought to cry out for justice so i'm not speaking to things like that i'm just speaking to our own psyche as human beings oftentimes we are really quick to feel like we have been wronged by others aren't we you know we somebody gives us that side eye or that weird look or maybe they say that they, they they're talking to us and they say something that we comes across like hmm, how did you mean that and so we take offense our our, our default position or we veer towards the point where we take offense at what others have said or communicated to us and we feel oh I've been wronged look at me and we open up Philippians 2 and we say well actually Christ was wronged (laughs) look at him what is the mind that we ought to have one way that this particularly reveals itself is uh, at least in my own life is is in like text messages and emails you know you can't hear tone as you communicate with people right how many times have you read a text message or an email in the last month and you thought are they saying that sarcastically Are they saying that angrily? Are they saying that mercifully? You know, I don't understand what they're saying about this, so I'm going to choose to feel like I'm offended by it. You know, it's so easy, right, for us to find offense with ways people communicate with us, ways people act towards us. And what Paul is holding up for us here is he says, do not be a people who look for ways to find offense in ways that people have harmed you. But what Paul holds up for us is to have a mind uh, that seeks to view Christ and to be shaped by his total humiliation and then let that shape how you interact with others and the perspective you have towards them. But the picture that, Christ, that Paul holds up for us is not one just of the humiliation of Christ. So if he holds up for us and says, in, back in verse 5, this charge, I want you to have a mind that is transformed by Christ, he holds up the humiliation of Christ, which ought to transform our minds. But then he also holds up now, in verses 9 through 11, the exaltation of Christ. We, if we stop just at the cross of Christ and his redemptive work that he has done, then we'll, we'll have stopped too short. But let's read on in verses 9 through 11. Verse 9 reads, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that, therefore, in verse 9? Do you see that? So Paul just said in verses 6-8, through all this thing, all this from from Christ's uh, eternal reign all the way down to his death on the cross, and then uh, he says in verse 9, Therefore... And and you notice something else here in this passage. It's all been about Jesus Christ in verses 6 through 8. But now in the therefore, God the Father comes on the scene. And we have to see his role now in verses 9 through 11. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. You see that, right? God the Father enters the scene. And what does he do? He glorifies. He exalts the Son. He bestows on him a name that is above every name. Now, what is that name? I believe it's Lord, which, which was which a name that was described to God the Father in the Old Testament. A name that was described to God the Father in the original Hebrew Scriptures. A name that was described to God as, as, a, as a word, that we, Yahweh, of which, which was, was so holy that, that, that it would not be spoken. And what we are seeing now is that God the Father has bestowed this name upon His Son as the son has accomplished this redemptive work in, 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 his, uh, in his divine state in coming to bring a people to himself. And you know where this connects with? One place in scripture, we actually saw it earlier today in our service, back in Isaiah 45. Look back at, in your bulletin, look back at Isaiah 45, particularly verses 22 and 23, or you can turn there in your Bible, and I want to connect this, this is incredible to see. This is, okay, so keep in mind, this is a prophecy where um, Isaiah the prophet, one thing that Isaiah was, was continually, one, one of the messages that he was continually reminding the people that he was prophesying to, the people of Israel, one thing that he was continually uh, upholding for them is that the God, their God is one, and the God, their God is God alone. There are no other gods, okay? So that's, that's one of Isaiah's messages that he is making known. And so then in Isaiah... Chapter 45, verses 22 and 23 uh, in this prophecy of how people from outside of the people of Israel, people from every uh, from from all ends of the earth will come to the Lord. It reads, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other by myself. I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. And then listen to the end of verse 23. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. So you hear that. And then you read verses nine and following. God's highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. The Apostle Paul, this Jewish scholar, this man steeped in his Old Testament. What he's showing us here is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has accomplished this work that God the Father has set out. And he has accomplished this work, and therefore he is due the worship of his name. And you know, one other thing to see here that that pushes us towards humility towards one another as we consider the humiliation of Christ and then the exaltation of Christ, another thing that we ought to see is look at verse 9. We ought to see the manner by which the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the manner by which they exalt one another, manner by which they show deference towards one another for the exaltation of their name. It says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name jesus christ the son of god was not a manifest state well let me word this carefully he was not god the father who came he was god the son the father models a humble attitude a humble perspective towards the son in exalting him and bringing glory to his name the son models this humble spirit, this humble perspective in honoring and in, in, in fulfilling uh, the, miss, the mission for which the father sent him. And he shows this humble estate in a, of fulfilling this redemptive work that he has accomplished for us on the cross. And this urges us towards a response in adoration of the son of God. Now, think about this here. Because we're seeing a picture of Jesus Christ bringing glory to his name and bringing glory to the Father. Now, earlier I asked you, if you are not quite familiar with Christianity or you're still learning about Jesus, I asked you to pay attention on this because we are seeing some glorious, some, some majestic truths about Jesus as revealed in Scripture. Now, I want to I, I see if you have observed something with me here, and we'll, we'll revisit this at, at our conclusion in a few moments. But what we see happening in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is something that is so dramatically different than all other worldviews, all other religions that this world knows. In every other belief system, it, it operates in some way, shape, or form that basically says, you do this in order to make yourself, to, in order to make your way to God. says, okay, so here are the good deeds or the alms or the uh, instructions that you have to obey, the ways in which you have to be obedient to God in order to earn his favor, in order to make yourself acceptable before him but what paul is showing us is a god who does not stand up on high and say okay come to me if you can climb yourself out of that well no what paul is showing us is god in jesus christ who has come to us in order to deliver us in our helplessness and our spiritually dead state you see we would like to view ourselves as generally capable capable of digging ourselves out of any kind of bind that we find ourselves in, in life as well as spiritually. You know, we think that we can, we can solve our problems. We think we can try harder. We think we can muster these, uh, whatever we need to muster in order to make ourselves righteousness or in, order to, or, or in order to make ourselves righteous. But what we see here is that it's only found in Jesus Christ. In him is our source of our hope for a life that is pleasing and fitting before God. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not too bad. I, 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 it, it's not too far of a climb for me. But in reality, we're kind of like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know, the knight that is guarding the bridge, and he has both of his arms cut off and his legs cut off, and he's like, oh, it is just a flesh wound. That's what we are. We think we're actually doing okay. We think it's just a little flesh wound that we can patch up and make our way to God. When in fact, we're without arms, without legs, and we have nowhere to go, we need him to carry us. That is what Paul is showing us. And then as he shows us this, he brings us to this point where we see this Christ who has come for us. God sees him. God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him this name. And then verse 10 and 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what's powerful about the word "every? It means "every." Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. I believe that what this means is that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, some joyfully, adoringly, and some begrudgingly, and even as a e- even in judgment upon them for their refusal to profess faith in Christ and believe in him. So we who are the church, we who are in Christ, we anticipate that day when our knees will bow, our tongues will confess, we will see our Lord Jesus and give glory to his name. And those who do not know the Lord will do the same. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Donald Trump will bow before the Lord Jesus and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Joe Biden will bow before the Lord Jesus and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Kim Jong-un will bow before the Lord Jesus and confess that he is Lord. The guy who stocks the produce at the grocery store will bow before the Lord Jesus and confess that he is Lord. The telemarketer who calls you during dinner will bow before the Lord Jesus and confess that he is Lord. And you will bow before the Lord Jesus and confess that he is Lord. And there is much for us to confess and be glad in that these words of verses 5-11 through 11 are true. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see that again. Where the Father gets glory through people professing the Son as the Lord. That model of humility, not only in the Son, in Christ, who we are to have this mind of, we are also observing, casually, we are observing the Father being glorified through the Son. Now, you know, there's a few ways that this has shaped me, that this has struck me, as I've reflected upon this. How does this fuel our evangelism? How does this fuel our attitudes towards others? If we know that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. How does this view the person that maybe I'm a little intimidated, I'm a little nervous about trying to share the hope of the gospel with them? Last time I did it, it didn't go so well. I think I committed heresy and tripped over my feet 15 times, and ugh, I don't know. Well, if you tripped over your feet last time, you tripped over your tongue, if you got tongue-tied, give it another shot. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You know, if life is particularly hard for you in this season, Perhaps I I, I joked a little earlier about how we all take offense to things easily. We don't have to have somebody come along and tell us, you should be offended by that. And we say, "Hmm, you know, you're right. We actually have to have people tell us, no, you shouldn't be offended by that. That's not what they meant. But I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't some of us who we have legitimate reason to be hurt, to be offended, to be grieved by the actions of others, even to be heinously hurt and mistreated by others. May these words of Paul to the church at Philippi be a comfort to you that whomever it is has mistreated you, whomever it is who has hurt you, they will bow before the Lord Jesus. And though they may have acted like a tyrant and a Lord who knew no mercy to you, they will know their Lord. And they might know Him fully in His justice. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And so as Paul urges us towards this mind that is ours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord as paul has held this christ up for us may we consider his humiliation may we consider his exaltation and may we hear the charge of paul and as we think back to that skyscraper that 33 thomas street that is upholding so much of the infrastructure, so much of the, 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 the communications wiring that our region knows. And as we consider our minds, which is holding up all of the wiring of our thoughts, of our actions, of our tongues, of our hands, of, of our motivations, of our dreams, of our, of our interactions with one another. And as we consider our minds, our thoughts are the driving force in directing us. May we be transformed and have the mind of Christ. And may we see His humiliation. May we see His exaltation. And may our being transformed in mind by Him lead to His glorification through us. Let's pray. Lord God, we give to You praise that is due to you. I pray Lord that if there are any here who perhaps they are not in that position where they their hearts are crying out in confession that you are Lord and in praise to your name would you bring them to that even now. And Lord, would you help us to be a people who live in the shadow of Christ's cross and live with a look out the windshield at the future to come of Christ's exaltation and us kneeling before and confessing that He is Lord. And may these two things, this in the rearview mirror and this in the windshield, may they shape our minds here today towards one another. And We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.